0: Welcome, and thank you for joining this podcast brought to you by the American Heart Association. The association's Digital Digest series features a range of podcasts and videos focused on the latest resuscitation science topics. Thanks for uh, joining us today. I'm Cliff Calloway. I am a volunteer for the American Heart Association and a professor of emergency medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, I'm uh, happy today to join uh, Dr. Carl Kern, uh, who is the current chair of the Emergency Cardiovascular Care Committee for the American Heart Association. And we're going to be talking about coronary angiography for uh, patients with cardiac arrest. Uh, Carl, thanks for talking to us about this. You're welcome, Cliff. What Cliff didn't tell you is he was the former chair of this same <laughs> committee. So we've actually
1: known each other for quite a while and have... Uh, I think, strong opinions uh, about this topic. Uh, we're not that far off, even though our disciplines are quite different. I'm an interventional cardiologist at the University of Arizona.
0: Why don't we start by sort of setting the context for um, what the problem is. So how many, how many patients have cardiac arrest or out of hospital cardiac arrest acutely uh, in the United States?
1: So I think the, uh, the current statistics uh, published just in January of 2019 are still Somewhere in the ballpark of 350,000 cardiac arrests out of hospital per year, and another 220,000 in-hospital cardiac arrests.
0: Yeah, and the, the cause is often uh, coronary artery disease. Not always, but um, it is a big contributor to those yes, cases.
1: Certainly in the adult population, when it's witnessed, for example, in an out-of-hospital setting. Coronary disease has to be uh, far and away the most likely. There are obviously, as you mentioned, exceptions that are important to consider once you've eliminated the possibility that this is a coronary-driven cardiac arrest.
0: We have guidelines about intervening. If the root cause is a coronary artery lesion, um, there are some patients where I think uh, I think we have strong recommendations to uh, consider intervention. For example, ST elevation is present.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know the 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 ticket here is to understand how helpful is the uh, EKG. And maybe we can come back to that. but clearly the the first guideline that's uh, that's been published is about the ST segment elevation MI patient who then has an associated cardiac arrest arrest, excuse me. Um, we've come to believe those patients need to be treated just like any other STEMI patient, whether they've had the arrest or not. And it turns out we were right. When we look at the data of the coronary angiographic findings, those with or without cardiac arrest who suffer a STEMI, an ST elevation MI, have about eight out of 10 or 80% of them have an acutely occluded coronary vessel. And hence, the whole world has got on board with this first medical contact to reperfusion or the old door to balloon Mm -hmm. time needs to be under 90 minutes to really give them the benefit of reperfusion in a timely fashion so you save muscle.
0: Yeah, the cardiac arrest patient though is a bit different because they're they're unstable, they may be in shock, they may have had other injury. Um, I know that uh, as an emergency physician, some of my uh, colleagues in cardiology are reluctant to intervene with uh, a cardiac arrest patient because they might be in a coma. Perhaps they're gonna have a neurological uh, devastation and this will contribute to their mortality. Uh, and have nothing to do with uh, uh, their coronary occlusion, uh, yet their death will be uh, reflect poorly on the cardiac intervention that I'm asking them to, to come in and do.
1: And, and this is certainly a big problem and an issue for many in the interventional community. Um, I think what we've learned, and thanks to your group there at the University of Pittsburgh, um, we've made progress in understanding that aggressive post-arrest care during this very vulnerable period is mm-hmm. critical for good long-term outcome. There's still a, this unknown, will they really recover neurologically? But again, if they have ST elevation, the current guideline is a class one. Whether they're comatose or awake, you need to take them in. Where we need to make real progress is in what we do with that data and that in public reporting. Uh, and we, we hope to be on the edge of making that progress. The, the current database used for collecting this information in STEMI patients is the American College of Cardiology uh, National Cath and PCI database. That database now collects 21 different questions about cardiac arrest mm-hmm. in these circumstances, whereas the old version just uh, a year ago only had one. So I think we're on the, on the verge of really gathering the data we need. Now we simply need to all understand that, frankly, these really are two different populations. The expected mortality for a STEMI patient without cardiac arrest is 5% or less. And the world's achieved that with the 90-minute mm-hmm. uh, goal of uh, reperfusion. S- so the truth is, in, in the population population, um, with an ST elevation MI and associated cardiac arrest out in the field, we know that the neurologic uh, prognosis is not going to be as good. But with aggressive therapy, they have their best chance. And so I believe, personally, that everybody deserves that chance. Save their muscle, open their vessel, treat them aggressively, even neurologically, with simultaneous temperature management, whatever your group uh, has decided upon but don't just ignore them and hope for the best. They deserve now a real chance, and that's why it's a class one recommendation. What's lost in the discussion is that this is only about a quarter of all of out of hospital cardiac arrest mm-hmm. in adults. Mm-hmm. The vast majority, three quarters of them, do not have ST elevation, and hence, that so, one's more controversial.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a tough call, and yeah. in fact, I, um, I don't think it's restricted to cardiac arrest. You know What to do with non-ST elevation, uh, acute coronary syndrome and uh, non in STEMIs, uh, I see a I see a wide range of practice. You know, do we do we intervene right away? Do we cool them off and intervene at a later time? You know, what uh, well, you now? And if I add cardiac arrest on top of that, it becomes a, a, an even more difficult. Yeah. No question,
1: because these are the ones. You're right. It's taken us decades to even show that an invasive approach is probably the right approach. We used to cool them off for not just a day, but, oh, if it's Friday night, we'd wait till Monday to even address these people. That's no longer acceptable. In the cardiology circles, it needs to be within 24 hours. But if you have an occluded vessel as the cause of your cardiac arrest, even if your EKG doesn't show that or suggest it, it needs to be opened way before 24 hours, so somewhere in the first several hours, in my opinion. Therein lies the real dilemma. And
0: uh, what do you do at, uh, at Pittsburgh? How do you uh, address this? Um, if there's not clear ST elevation, you know we we look for reasons to think that a coronary occlusion might be at play. Um, so features of the history might play into uh, into that. If the patient was having chest pain, or you know we know that they have uh, high grade disease from prior, then we're suspicious, and you know that might prompt us to intervene sooner. If there's instability, then I'm certainly going to push harder for uh, more rapid intervention. If the patient's troponins are rising, then I know muscle is dying and that this is an opportunity to intervene. And you can look at at the echo. If uh, one of the walls is down, if there's a wall motion abnormality that um, shows that some of the muscle is uh, at risk, then I'm going to push harder for that patient to get emergent intervention as opposed to waiting for a bit. Um, so I, I think even without a high-level recommendation, you can come to the patient's bedside and have a suspicion that this patient will benefit from an intervention right now uh, as opposed to uh, later if they, if they survive. Um, and it's not just the EKG. That's not the only tool we have to, to sort those patients out.
1: And you've also done some really nice work about their neurologic uh what everybody worries about will Mm -hmm. they wake up Mm -hmm. i don't want to open this vessel and and save the heart if in fact they're going to be uh, markedly impaired neurologically Um, you've shared that with me but i think that would be interesting to the audience what what's the approach at pittsburgh
0: right we've written in guidelines that you should not make a prognosis on the patient based on their initial appearance and uh, that's true uh, to an extent Um, you can't know for certain that a patient's going to be neurologically devastated because everybody looks bad uh, right after cardiac arrest. But the more quickly you're recovering, uh, the better your prognosis is. So if you got a shock uh, and are, are waking right up, I think clearly your neurological trajectory is better than somebody who had a long bout of CPR and is now deeply comatose and is missing a lot of their brainstem reflexes. We've tried to stratify patients uh, based on their initial exam during the first hour or two after cardiac arrest uh, and have found that um, if you come to the bedside and just look at a few simple things. Are their brainstem reflexes preserved? Are they awake and following commands? You can bracket down uh, 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 different categories of patients who have very different expected recovers neurologically. Someone who's waking up and beginning to follow commands quickly has about an 80% chance of, uh, of good survival. Um, someone who has preserved brainstem reflexes but is in a coma may have a 50 or 60% chance of survival and a good outcome. You know That's a, a patient well for whom aggressive cardiac care certainly should be on the table. Folks whose brainstem reflexes are missing, uh, we have found that they, uh, they don't do as well. Um, and uh, it may be that that's the group that's highest risk for neurological death later on, and the interventions uh, with their heart may or may not alter that trajectory. Um, you don't want to you don't want to leave any cards on the table though for all of the rest of the patients who have uh, pretty good exams and seem to be recovering. Um, so I, I again think that there's multiple clinical factors you can use to assess oh, this patient has some great signs of life and has a great opportunity for a good trajectory and we should be aggressive with our early interventions so that we, we preserve that chance of a, of a good trajectory of recovery.
1: So as you're aware, um, there are a number of randomized trials for the subgroup underway, actually nine mm-hmm. by my count. One was just reported um, three weeks ago. Right. Came out of Europe. And a very nice study, randomized for first time, this group without ST elevation, post-arrest, early cath versus delayed or no cath. And uh, their primary endpoint was 90-day survival. They they found no difference, although both were excellent survival, 65% versus basically 67. Um, But it's really stirred the uh, interventional community already. Uh, I think like most science, people see what they want to see. Mm-hmm. If you're looking for a reason not to do something, this is a perfect answer. Well, there's no difference in outcome. But they had a very low rate of acutely occluded vessels mm-hmm. found. In other words, there wasn't much to save by the population at least that they studied. Mm-hmm. Um, any of your thoughts? What? How do you interpret this? What would you say to your interventional group?
0: Yeah, I I think that uh, that, that was a uh, I think that the data from, from this trial are uh, true and, um, and valid, but my concern was that the population that they enrolled um, was picked in a way that may not represent all of the patients that we encounter in the emergency. So um, some of the opportunities to exclude patients included that the clinician judged that one path of care was clearly indicated over another. Uh, Folks who had um, severe shock, I think, were also excluded. Correct. Um, So, if clinical judgment's any good, that means the people where the clinician had a good sense that one strategy versus another was the right way to go are out of the trial. And all we're left with are ones where clinical judgment said, it probably won't matter what we do. And the trial, in fact, found it didn't matter what we did. So um, I'm I'm very cautious when a trial has a hefty dose of clinical judgment in the inclusion criteria that we're biasing that trial towards a neutral result. And um, I'm I'm afraid that that might be what we got there. The other trials have slightly different uh, uh, inclusion criteria and they're ongoing. So I think it'll be very important to compare trial to trial to see if similar uh, cohorts are enrolled if the incidence of coronary disease is similar in the different cohorts, if the overall survival of the uh, different groups in these different trials are similar. 80%, 60% survival, sure sounds like a very uh, uh, well-selected group of -of out-of-hospital cardiac arrests. It's certainly way
1: above where we started. We really got into this when it was about a 25% (laughs) survival and uh, the best of hands were getting 50%. So now we can see both of those exceeded with either group here, early or not early. Well, Cliff, last question uh, they've asked us to both weigh in on is uh, basically, where does uh, coronary angiography fit in the chain of survival? There is a new link for Mm post-arrest care. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you see its importance? And then I'll tell you an interventional cardiologist viewpoint.
0: I think um, with the Treatment of patients who have cardiac arrest, once we get through the situation of the heart being stopped and we start the heart again, you have two major considerations. One is what's the etiology that led them to have a cardiac arrest? What is the disease that they have? And we have to we have to fix that because it's still at play unless we've intervened. And then we, secondly, have to do damage control on all of the organs that were insulted during the process of resuscitation and cardiac arrest. Um, Sometimes we focus just on one or the other, and I don't think you can have a patient um, treated with only one or the other. We can't just do angiography without doing damage control of the organs. We can't just do hypothermia and some damage control on different organs and not pay attention to the underlying etiology. So I think that in terms of a system of care, If the patient has coronary artery disease as the etiology of their arrest, then the aggressive coronary interventions that have been developed for coronary artery disease need to be on the table as part of the total care of the patient for um, giving them the best chance of coming through this.
1: Well, we are obviously very similar (laughs) in many ways, uh, including our gray hair. (laughs) But nonetheless, I actually have a very similar opinion. I think that clearly, you want to make sure you've covered the reason that they have had this devastating event. And I've come to believe that, frankly, as I was taught medical school from subclinical coronary disease to stable angina to unstable to a Q wave or what's now an ST elevation MI, isn't really the end of the spectrum, that actually yeah. VF out of hospital cardiac arrest is a acute coronary sim- syndrome manifestation until proven otherwise. Mm-hmm. And that they needed to be treated for that alone but in combination, we're big fans of doing this simultaneously. There's no reason you have to wait until they're upstairs in the ICU mm-hmm. to get started on uh, whatever hypothermia protocol you favor while you're in the cath lab. It's not, there are ways to do it today that do not get in the way, do not delay uh, anything, and I'm of the opinion they ought to both be done right away. So Agreed. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure as always. Yep. We're grateful for the those of our audience who've paid, uh, um, who've come and listened with us today as we've discussed what I think is a important topic and one that's clearly on the forefront with some new publications and more to come. Again, with eight uh, randomized trials yet to be uh, presented and published that we should see in the next uh, several years. Thanks very much. Thank you.
0: Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Heart Association and the American Stroke Association. For transcripts of this podcast and more information about resuscitation science, please visit CPR.heart.org or engage with us via social media using hashtag ECC Digital Digest.